Hey, good morning. Welcome back. You might hear the pages of my Bible flipping to the book of Ephesians. And if you're in a place where you have access to a Bible, I would encourage you to flip there, because that's where, uh, that's where I'm going to be basing most of the things that I'm saying on. And um, by the way, I haven't said this in a little while, but once again, I hope that you're not wanting to hear from this guy, Josh Wilder, and hearing what he has to say. I hope that you know the Good Shepherd, Jesus, and you are wanting to hear his voice as he speaks. And he speaks to us through all of Scripture. This is all God's Word. It is all God-breathed. He has inspired it. He has connected himself to it in such a way that this revelation that comes to us through the scriptures is authoritative. It's exactly what God wants it to be for all times and all places, for all people, from all cultures and backgrounds and ways of life and perspectives and ways of looking at things. It's for everyone, and it's a challenge to everyone because every single person grows up in a world that's fallen, and we are shaped and massaged and formed by that world, which actually means that we are misshapen and malformed by the world around us. And it's not just the world around us. We are born into sin. And so even if you had the perfect environment that didn't misshape you. You are bent so that you will grow misshapenly. So that you will be formed, not the way God intended. It's called original sin. It's called living under the fall. And that's why God's word is a challenge to all of us. It should be. It shouldn't be easy pickings. It should be something we have to wrestle with. We have to be challenged by. It may take time to come to God's point of view on things. I want to say that because I haven't said it in a while, but also because some of the things in this passage are going to be difficult and they're going to need to be wrestled with. We live in a materialist world, if, you, if you're coming from the West, where the dominant framework of reality is atomistic and materialistic. And what I mean by that, I mean atomistic in the sense that we think of a universe in terms of individual entities that are almost entirely disconnected from one another, other than occupying the same universe We believe that every person, everything is its own little thing, and it just so happens to be bumped into by another thing, and then it reacts. But otherwise, things are not, by nature, intimately connected to one another. And by materialist, I mean that most of us end up spending most of our life and most of our time thinking that really all that exists is the physical world and the things that we have to deal with in the physical world. We do not dwell or occupy ourselves in a metaphysical world, and the only people who do that that are people like philosophers. And they often end up 
kind of skewed in doing so. That is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that the universe is connected in more ways than we realize, and that there is an immaterial, an immaterial component to the universe that is just as active and just as real as the physical world. We struggle. We struggle to believe this. But it is nevertheless true. So we got to wrestle with it. We have to struggle with it. We have to wrestle with it. That is what it means to follow Christ. It means to wrestle. Maybe when we initially come to him, it's because we have a major problem that he solves for us. Sometimes the Lord will do something amazing right off the bat. Boom! To move you in, to draw you in. To help you to see what his heart is like. That his heart is for you. That he desires you. That he wants to deliver you. He wants to rescue you. And so he does that. Usually it's rescue out of some sort of immediate circumstance. Some immediate stress or anxiety. But his rescue is not simply to rescue you from unpleasant circumstances. It's to rescue you from this constant malformation. It's to rescue you from yourself, that part of you that is stuck and bent inward on itself. It's to rescue you from your own ignorance and from your wrong ideas. And the way he's going to do that is by continuously challenging you to wrestle with him. So, in light of this, let's read. I, once again, last time I, um, I said I'm going, to do an o- I'm going to do a little bit of overlap from last time. So, uh, because there, there was more in, in verses, uh, say, 19 to 26 that I wanted to get into this time. I didn't have enough time to do it. So, I'm going to go ahead and read. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and... Well, maybe I should give a little bit of background first. Once again, uh, just by way of reminder, Paul is writing from prison. Paul has um, three major circumstances I mentioned last time that would, to most of us, make us think, this is over. It makes us want to give up. Paul has been imprisoned. Paul has people um, outside, outside of the prison world, who are seeking to afflict him. So they're making his life worse. And Paul also has the possibility of death hanging over his head. Those are the three big things that he has to deal with. And Paul's response to all this is rejoicing and joy because he sees in the midst of all of these circumstances, God is at work. The word of Christ, the gospel is moving forward. And in all of these circumstances, it isn't the devil getting the upper hand. It's the Lord Jesus who's getting the upper hand. So Paul is rejoicing in the midst of these circumstances, and we're going to break into into that last one, the possibility of Paul's death. He says this in, in, well, verse 19 uh, cuts into the middle of a sentence, so I'm going to back up to 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life, verse 27, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side, For the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, for the sake of uh, that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. That ends chapter 1. So, bring it back to, uh, to the beginning of this passage I just read. Paul is rejoicing because the gospel is going out regardless of his circumstances. And he says, uh, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance there in verse 19. By the way, Paul says, through your prayers. Do you know that God works through your prayers? God desires, God's plan of action is to work through our prayers. Some people struggle with prayer. I do sometimes. I mean intellectually. I mean, we all struggle with prayer actually doing it because we don't really know what we're doing in, a, in large part. But some of us struggle intellectually with prayer. Well, isn't God going to do what he's going to do anyway? I mean, he's God after all. Yes, he is God. And he has ordained in himself that this is how he would work, through our prayers. It is not a necessary relationship that God should work in tandem with us, but God has seen to it that this would be the case. This is how God wants to work. So if you have been praying, if you are discouraged in prayer, if you've given up praying for something, or if you don't really get it, and so you find it hard to do because you don't really get it, know this. God has ordained to work through your prayers. Keep at it. When you think it's doing nothing at all, do not trust your eyes. Do not trust your mind. Do not trust that thought that says, 
it's not doing anything. That isn't true. God works through our prayers. So Paul says, through your prayers, and he says, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now that's interesting. There are a few times in the New Testament where Paul calls the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. He also calls him the Spirit of the Father. He also calls him the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some um, cooked up idea by theologians from the third and fourth centuries. The doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely essential to Christian thought. And it isn't something that theologians came up with. It comes from, from Scripture itself. God himself has revealed himself this way. Theologians were trying to, to figure out just what does this mean? Jesus talks of the Father as God. Jesus talks of himself as God. The authors of Scripture talk about the Holy Spirit as God. They talk about him as the Holy Spirit. They talk about him as the Spirit of the Father. They talk about the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus. There's this language that speaks of relationship within God. And it is very mysterious. We do not understand how it all works. We know enough to know that God is this way. We know that they are persons because they have personal, they do things that are personal, that persons do. And we know that they relate to one another because we see them do so in Scripture. For example, the Son speaking to the Father, the Father speaking to the Son, the content of that speech. For example, Jesus saying things like, You loved me, Father, before the foundation of the world. That implies some kind of communion or communication existing between persons. The Trinity is a big mystery, but it is very important. It is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, whom Paul calls him here, who is God at work in our lives today, in the absence of Christ. In the absence of Christ himself, personally, physically, bodily, here on earth, (coughs) his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, is present to us, with us, in the words of Paul, helping him for his deliverance, he says. And he says, it's his eager expectation and hope that he will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the deliverance he's talking about. He's going to be delivered from prison, either by his death or through, his, uh, or through simply being released and continuing on in this life. But he says, either way, Christ is going to be honored, whether I continue in life or whether I go to be with him in death. In verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to just pause here really quick. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, let's, let's look at the second part of that. What does he mean, to die is gain? Well, he sa- he's going to explain here. He says, 
Uh, you might say verse 21 is sort of a summary of what he's about to say. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And he goes on later what that fruitful labor will mean. Um, he says, uh, to remain in the flesh, once again, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain with you all so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So why is it that to live is Christ? Well, he's saying that to live means to continue the work of Christ, to continue the work here on earth that Christ is doing alongside of him. To live is Christ. And what does he mean by saying to die is gain? Well, he says, my, de- my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. What he means is to die. To die is gain. Why is that, Why is that gain? Because as believers, the moment you die, you come into the presence of Christ. And the barrier that separates you from him, uh, I would, in not just a physical sense, but that, that barrier of, of being in a fallen world, the, all the other voices that try and crowd out his own, all the other things that grab your attention, those are all removed. And you are there in the presence of Christ. That's exactly what happens to you as a believer when you die. When you die, you are immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. Here's a question for you. Is that something that you long for? Do you kind of think, well, that kind of might be a bummer because I have a lot of things I like here. I would miss this, that, and the other. I would miss my wife, my children. I would miss my job. I would miss my friends. I would miss my Corvette. I don't know (laughs) if you have a Corvette. For Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because to die is to gain Christ in a way that you can't have him here on this earth. For Paul, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. Whether I'm here on this earth in this life, my life is going to be all about him. And if I die, my life is going to be all about him. There's nothing else to get between me and him. All about Jesus. I got to tell you, this is convicting for me. Because I try, I try to make my life about Jesus, but there are so many things, so many barriers, so many things that grab my attention, that pull me away from Him. But I want to, I want to seek Him, I want Him to fill the screen of my mind. I want to be like Paul, I want to be like to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, the older you get, the more you might think to die is gain because the more you lose your connections, the more you lose the things that make you feel like you got a stake in this world, like you got a franchise in this age, like you matter, like people depend on you. When you get old enough, you'll find that people care less and they come around less frequently. If you get old enough, They might even send you to one of these nice, luxurious resorts 
where young people wait on you and you get to be in a retirement community where you're around a bunch of other old people that most of our world has forgotten about and you get to sit in a holding tank until you're dead. Sorry if that's a real cynical way of putting it, but that is not exactly something I want to look forward to. But you can tell that if that's what your life is, you're going to say to die is gain. <laughs> you know? You're going to be saying, man, I want to be with Jesus. I got a lot less to look forward to in this life. Paul wasn't that old, though. Paul was just saying, man, I want to see Jesus face to face. That's what I want. So for him, to die is gain. Is it for you? Is it for I? Paul says later on in one of the last letters he wrote to Timothy, is in Timothy uh, Chapter 4. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it. It's 2 Timothy, not 1st. Obviously, the second one was written after the first one. But in 2 Timothy, Paul says this. For, for, there's something special. There's something special awaiting for those who are longing, longing for Jesus. He says this in, in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, henceforth, he's saying... His life is coming to an end. He knows he's going to die at this point. I'll back up to verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's saying I'm going to die. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, a lot of people have memorized that verse. They're familiar with that verse because it's like saying, Hey, I've come to the end of my life. My time is up, and I don't have regrets. I've done it to the full. Now, here, listen, pay attention to this that he says. Henceforth, so I, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He means on the judgment day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do you want to see him? Do you long to see Jesus? Or are you still really hoping to get this, that, and the other here in this life? Man, what a challenge. What a challenge that is. I don't know if I could say, I'm longing to see his appearing. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I want to want that. I want to long to see Jesus. I want to long for his appearing. Of late, in the past decade, there's been a, a, a wave that's come through evangelicalism. There are waves that come through every once in a while. It's really kind of a, the, a kingdom is now is sort of the language used wave. It's a return to the Jewish roots of Christianity kind of wave, which 
tends to neglect New Testament teaching in favor of the Old Testament, an idea in there, the eschatology has less to do with God breaking in and doing something and more to do with us fixing the world. So you focus your attention less on the coming Lord and more on fixing the broken world. Now, of course, we have things to do here. We have things to do on this planet. We have things to do in this age. But if those things come at the expense of a longing for Jesus, we are doing them in vain. We are doing them in vain. In this age, we have forgotten that we live, metaphorically speaking, in a world that has been bombarded with nuclear bombs. And it's in shambles. We see the brokenness. We see the rubble. And as we're trying to put it together and fixing it, we are still constantly taking in radiation poisoning that's killing us. This age is coming to an end. The only cure is Jesus. If we are to set right everything in the world, to pick up all the rubble and rebuild all of the new buildings, we're still going to die of that radiation poisoning, and so is everyone else, which is why we need Jesus. He is the cure. So what if you pick up all the rubble and put everything together when everyone's going to be dead and nobody's going to see it? It's not going to matter to anybody because there will be no one left for it to matter to. We have to have Jesus capturing our attention to give meaning to the fixing of the world. So that as we fix it, we tell other people, we're not just here to do good, though that is a good thing to do. Because all that good done is not going to matter if the outcome in the end is death. People need Jesus. People need other things too. They need food, they need shelter, they need help, they need comfort. But to give them those things without giving them Jesus is not to do them a favor. And it is not to be faithful in the mission of Jesus. And you know the reason why we can do those things and not give people Jesus is because we do not long for his appearance. And I'm not saying this to shame us. I'm not saying this to shame anyone. We got enough shame to go around. What I'm hoping to do is to encourage you to light a fire inside of you, inside of me. To light a fire of longing, of desire for Jesus to say, Lord, I want my whole life to be about you so that whether in life or in death, it doesn't matter. It's all about you. You are what it's all about.
I have to move on or else we won't get through, through verses 27 to 30. Paul says this in verse 27. His, he has an application in light of all that he said. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does he mean by that? It's a great question. What does he mean to have a, a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel? Well, he's going to get to that later. He says, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear. I may hear of you. And then he's going to get into what it, what it means to have a manner of life worthy of the gospel. The whole whether I see you or not, that just means that he wants them to have integrity. That they're not like, oh, shoot, Paul's here. We better get on whatever this is, you know. Uh, that they will have this internal motivation that's driving them to live a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. So what is that? Paul says that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see what he's getting at? He's saying his imprisonment, the fact that people are afflicting him in prison by preaching the gospel out of rivalry, the fact that he may be on death row, he may, he may be coming, uh, uh, coming to see the Lord. All these things are only serving to bring about the kingdom of God further, to bring the gospel uh, even further, moving it further and further and further in this world. All of that, Paul is saying, man, I'm rejoicing in this. God is at work. He's really doing something. He's on the move. So he's saying live, live a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm, by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the third thing is by not being frightened, being unafraid. Here's a question, are you afraid? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? We all have moments of weakness, even Peter. Peter was ashamed of Jesus, remember? He denied him. If you are afraid, or you have been afraid, I'm not bringing this up to... Once again, lay more shame and guilt on you. What you need is not to just buck up, be a tough guy, shake it off, get out there and do it, do it again. When you fall off the horse, you get back on. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No. What you need, what I need, is to see Jesus again, to fall in love with him again, to long for him, to have him be our life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, to have that attitude. If we can get a hold of this, if we can get a hold of that deep down into our being, into our hearts, we'll be able to live without fear. We'll be able to have courage. We'll be able to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. We'll be able to stand firm, as Paul says. And when we do that, our confidence will be even greater. 
See what Paul says in the latter half of verse 28. He says, uh, you know, you're not frightened anything by your opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When other people see your courage, when they see your courage, it is they who will then have to reckon with God. They will recognize that something is going on that they have to deal with. We live in a world that is hostile and increasingly becoming more and more hostile to the gospel, hostile to Jesus and his followers. And that means, I think, Christian friend, to you and to myself. We have a world that pushes back and gets angry at us. It lashes out. And when we shrink back, when we cower, when we say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean it. They then have the confidence that there's really nothing to what we're saying. There there really isn't anything worth having. But if they lash out, they strike at us, and we continue in pursuit of them, unabated, if we have courage to strive together and stand strong, then the world will know that there's something to what we're saying. There's something to this Jesus we're talking about. The flip side, Paul says, is that it will give us greater confidence of our own salvation. And the last word of encouragement Paul has here is in verse 29 where he says, For it has been granted to you not only, or or that you, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. What Paul is saying is just another word of encouragement that Jesus called you not only to believe in him, not only to trust in him, not only to have this longing for him, but to share in his sufferings, which means to suffer persecution, to get those side eyes, those side glances from people around you, those rolled eyes from people when they hear you talk about Jesus, to face the slander and the opprobrium of our world. And whether that comes through you just simply holding fast to what Jesus says is true, I mean, a very, a very clear-cut example would be in the realm of sexual ethics in our day. What you think of human sexuality, if you hold to the biblical vision, to Jesus' view you are going to rouse the ire of your neighbors. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus' sake? That's what he's called us to. Many of us do not accept the fact that we are a minority. What we want to do is what everyone else does. We want to join the clamor for power. We want to join together and get our people in and in charge so that we can shut down the voices who disagree with us and we can have the most dominant one. 
That isn't the biblical vision of what it means to follow Christ. He is the one who speaks through us. And he has not ordained that he should rule with an iron fist. Rather, the church has always been at its best and done its best work when it was small, when it was a minority, and when the culture around it was not indifferent to it, which usually meant hostility. Church has always been at its best that way. Can you accept that Jesus' call on your life is not that you should be happy and successful your entire life, but that you should suffer for his sake? That people should come to know him by your perseverance through their persecution of you? Man, what a word to me, you guys. What a word to me. It's very difficult as a pastor uh, one, one of the things that happens to you when you're a pastor is you, you begin quickly, fairly rapidly, to lose connection to people, um, to, to non-Christians. Because so much your, of your life you're dealing with your brothers and sisters. And that's a good thing. I'm not complaining about that. But what I'm saying is um, you, have to, you have to intentionally get out there to meet and speak with people who aren't believers. And even if you're not a pastor, it's very easy to just hide away in your house and turn the TV on. Or if, you know, if you're in Portland and you're like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't have a TV, okay, turn your laptop or your iPad on. You know we all got the subscription services, so not having a TV is no virtue here anymore, right? It's way easier to just stay indoors than to engage in the world around you. Certainly when that world is hostile towards you. Once again, I'm not trying to pump you up and get you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there and take on the world, you know. Once again, at the center, the center of this is union with Christ. Paul is saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live in this Christ, I'm going to do it alongside with, bound to Jesus in the work that he has for me. And if I die, I'm going to be bound to Jesus even tighter because there's nothing else in between he and I. That's how you get it. That's how we're able to do all this. That's how we're able to have courage. That's how we're able to live without fear. That's how we're able to step wide-eyed, into persecution, to say something knowing full well how people are going to hear it and that they're going to come back at you with a boo and a hiss. It's love of Christ. Paul says in, in Corinthians, he says, it's the love of Christ compels me or constrains me to continue to preach the gospel. Would that we were that way. If you, like me, are someone who's, who thinks, man, this is, this is really convicting, you know, I, I don't live like this. I don't have that attitude of to live to, to, is Christ and to die is gain. Come to Jesus right now. 
Tell him about it. Say, Lord, I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to be ashamed of you. I don't want to be afraid of the world out out there. I want to have courage. I want to stand firm. I want to strive side by side with my brothers and sisters alongside you in the furthering of the gospel. But I'm scared. I'm self-conscious. I got all these things hanging me up. Give me a vision of you. Show me your love for me. Show me who you are. Show me your love for the world. Magnify yourself in my heart so that I make myself, well, not make myself, so that I see you the way you actually are. And so that by your spirit, I might not care any longer about my own life and the things that I wanted. As the song goes, that the things of earth may go strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Pray that today. I'm going to go do that right now.